Hi, today I'd love to introduce you to videoblogs.com, a website that allows you to include sound effects for podcast or video background on your website. With videoblogs, there is no reason for your creative needs to be compromised due to budget constraints. You get studio quality stock, including HD footage, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and more for a fraction of the cost. Go to videoblogs.com and get exclusive discounts on millions of additional marketplace clips where you save 40% and can use clips for commercial and personal projects. And if you go to videoblogs.com slash expansion drive, you can start your 7-day trial. Hey, welcome back everybody to another episode of Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning easy for everyone. In uh, this episode, I would like to continue, kind of continue the, the conversation that I started a few episodes ago about the optimization techniques in deep learning. There are many other ways to optimize um, deep learning and, and uh, deep learning based methods. So uh, in the previous episode, I uh, mentioned the, some of the most used optimi- optimization techniques for deep learning, namely a stochastic gradient descent and uh, all the family of, uh, of descent methods that allow indeed um, parameter tuning. And so to be very short, I, I mentioned the fact that usually uh, a researcher or a practitioner feeds a network um, images, for instance, if it's about an image classifier, and so he, feeds, he or she feeds uh, images as input and labels associated to these inputs as output. And, um, and then what happens that kind of magically, but not really, because there are two or three episodes where I explain why is, is, is that the case, the neural network basically learns the uh, best set of parameters that indeed maintain the association between input and output. And this is basically what happens when you train a network. And it takes long because usually um, this you know function minimization occurs on a very high dimensional space. Uh, but essentially, I mean, from, from, from a conceptual perspective, there is nothing new uh, that, that with respect to traditional optimization techniques. And so if you speak to an applied mathematician or a mathematician, it, it will never be, you know, amazed by, by this approach. You just say, yeah, I mean, that's function optimization. That's it. It's just that you are using 200 million variables. And I was used to do that with, with three variables. But conceptually, that's not an essential difference. Now, the problem is that from a practical point of view, of course, this is, uh, there is a huge difference because, you know, uh, there are a lot of heuristics and a lot of uh, approximation that make the problem of optimization for deep learning uh, quite challenging for, you know, practical, practical use cases. Now, in this episode, I would like to uh, mention um, kind of a combination between two different technologies, because in all the previous episodes, I never said who comes with the network. Okay, the network will train and, and it will learn from the data and we feed the network images and outputs, etc., etc. But who comes with the topology? Uh, by topology, I mean the, the way the neurons are connected with each other. How many layers, which type of layers, 
what's what type of activation functions uh, in the neuron and anyway, all these these are called the hyperparameters and the network topology so who comes with the network topology and so in this episode i would like to kind of answer to this question and uh, also mention some of the um, fanciest techniques to uh, come with a, an algorithm that actually can learn these topologies by itself i hope you enjoy the show This is Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. Here's your host, Francesco Garaletta. So the subject I'm going to speak about today is goes under the name of neuroevolution. Uh, but actually, this is just you know a fancy name for something that already existed before that is called uh, genetic ag- algorithms or evolutionary computing. I don't want to discourage and you know kill the the enthusiasm around these methods, but this stuff that I'm I'm talking about and and you know even people uh, are writing papers about is it comes from the 60s. <laughs> now I don't want to undermine anyone here. Of course, these people are amazing researchers, uh, and actually I will mention some of them who want to combine these two technologies because, you know, a great idea is, doesn't necessarily uh, has to be great, like like completely new. It can also be something that, you know, it, it's, it's resumed from the past and, and it can just be proposed again when the conditions are, are better with respect to 40 or 50 years ago. So, uh, in the 60s, there was a certain John Holland at the University of Michigan who came up with this idea of uh, genetic algorithms. Uh, Now, what is the relation with genetic algorithms? First of all, we want to answer the question, who comes with the network? And and once you train a neural network model, uh, the first question that you have to ask yourself is, who came with the topology? Who invented it? So you might have a million topologies out there. You can go on the archive.org, um, uh, you know, the Cornell repository, um, open access, uh, whatever. You can download any method. You can read the latest, uh, the, no, the, the newest model out there that performs 0.001 uh, improvement on, on certain data sets, etc., etc., And then you can go home with these models and start training them. But who, who actually created them? Well, the short answer is that these models have been created uh, by researchers where, you know, during a very creative process, because that's, you know, where, where a lot of creativity is in place, because um, uh, adding a new layer or removing one or or defining the number of neurons per layer or defining a, a specific activation function which instead of a sigmoid it's some other uh, fancy uh, mathematical function so you know all these are might have a foundation of course uh, as I, I believe they they do but many times it's a bit you know uh, guts feelings a bit of luck and a bit of um uh, influenced by other researchers, other papers, and so these networks usually don't get de- designed from scratch all the time, but they come from previous networks and which were basically uh, very simple ones. So what is genetic algorithms? What does genetic algorithm have to do with this? Well, genetic algorithms can be a way to define these topologies, these networks, via another algorithm using evolution theory. 
so in order to understand what uh, genetic algorithms can do for us, uh, first of all, uh, as I said, we have to go back to the 60s where this John Holland uh, came up with this idea. They didn't, even, they didn't even give it a name because they didn't believe it would have been something, you know, interesting. But actually it did uh, because that those methods allowed it, researchers to explore very large spaces of parameters, much larger uh, than the ones that can be explored by methods like, for instance, grid search. And so these genetic algorithms basically... You know, they are very simple. I want to I wanna simplify a lot here. They are very simple because they simply imitate biology. And what do I mean by that? So let, let's go back to biology one second. I will diverge a bit from, from neural networks just to go back in, in one minute. So any biological organism, let's assume those that are equipped with DNA. <laughs> so those were, you know, there is a, a DNA, which is this long sequence of characters, of nucleotides, or whatever you want to call, that encode specific genes that in turn uh, encode specific proteins. There are also other genes that do not encode any protein, but let's assume, let's simplify here. So let's assume that we have a bunch of genes that encode a bunch of proteins, right? Now, these genes are defined by a DNA sequence. And uh, the DNA sequence can be mutated. And so this means that um, a mutation in the sequence can improve by chance uh, the, uh, the, the relative gene and therefore the relative protein. It can also, you know, uh, destroy the gene completely. And so the, the gene is not going to encode any protein anymore, or the protein that is encoded by the mutated gene uh, might be, uh, you know, worse than the, than the original one. So this can happen. Basically, anything can happen in biology, right? And um, with the genetic algorithms pretty much uh, resemble what, what really happened, I mean, what is the theory about the theory of evolution, that basically established the fact that um, across generations, like in millions of years, uh, these DNA sequences, of organisms uh, have been mutated uh, to generate, to give rise to um, organisms that were fitting, um, were were, were fitting the environmental conditions uh, better and better. And, and not just better and better, but they, there were some kind of evolution laws by which organisms that were not fitting anymore uh, basically uh, died or were killed by conditions, and uh, only those that um, could resist hostile environments could survive. And therefore, this survival uh, w could generate, you know, other offsprings that in turn were better and better and, and more and more fitting, uh, better and better fitting the, the, the environment. So this is what happened. I mean, this is a very brief explanation of how uh, genetic mutations work. I'm, I'm really oversimplifying it. I'm sorry about that. But it's not about biology that we have to talk because now take this, you know, individual organisms and, and replace them with individual models. And so this is exactly what a group at Google, a research group at Google did with neural networks. So they started from an initial population of individual models. Uh, these models were uh, neural networks. They were, you know, very stupid networks, like uh, uh, kind of random, actually random. So their weights were uh, random. And this means that when they were performing, measuring the accuracy of these um, individual models uh, in the initial population, they were basically almost always wrong. And um, in this case, uh, the uh, classifier was an image classifier. So 
what happens now? That they started from these, you know, thousand neural networks, uh, completely random, and they chose two individual two individuals at random. Okay, so let's say model one and model two, and then they measured the so-called the fitness, which is the accuracy of these two models on a benchmark set, right? And so let's say that we have fitness one and fitness two for model one and two respectively. Now. At that point, they generated two children out of these, you know, two uh, initial models, two called parents, and so they copied these two models into two uh, children, um, and uh, and they mutated these children. Now, I will explain in a minute what what do, what do I mean by mutating. Um, so once they mutated these these uh, children, they calculated the fitness again on uh, the same uh, benchmark set, and they kept and, and here is when the selection occurs because they kept only the model that performed the best. Now at the beginning, of course, it can happen just by chance, you know that that they both models suck, but but one sucks more than the other uh, just by 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 chance. And so uh, the idea is to kill the worst and keep the best. And so the best was added to the initial population that keeps, you know, and then you go over and over this process uh, again a million times. Well, not really a million times, but a, lo a lot of times. And so what happens at the end that you you will see uh, how this popula this initial population of, uh, um, of of network models starts improving because these mutations that occur kind of randomly um, will select only the individuals that are performing and those that are not are just uh, you know removed. How good is this? Well, remember when I said uh, mutating, applying a mutation to the children. Well, by mutating, I mean applying any of the uh, tuning uh, capabilities on the hyperparameters of a network. What are the hyperparameters? Well, the hyperparameters are all the parameters that are usually tuned by a researcher or a practitioner at the time of designing the neural network. Right? And so, for instance, it could be the number of layers, the number of neuron per la uh, neurons per layer, um, the type of activation functions, some, uh, some parameter in the activation function, if the activ activation function is, um, uh, can be represented by parameters. For instance, for an image classifier, I assume you might be using a convolutional neural network. And so even there, we have hyperparameters like uh, how many convolution filters, what is the size of each filter, and you know, adding neurons, removing neurons, etc., um, etc. Et so these are all hyperparameters that can be uh, can be tuned by a researcher. In the last two episodes, I think we spoke about the importance of the learning rate. You know, which is very difficult to 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 set as a prior because it's very difficult to estimate. Okay, what is the learning rate? How big is the step to for the stochastic gradient descent method towards uh, towards the minimum? And so setting the learning rate appropriately basically can lead one to convergence or 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 not, or even to convergence in a very slow or very uh, very fast. So you know the learning rate is just one of the uh, many possibilities to tune a network. There is another one, for instance, inheriting so from from parents to children, inheriting the weights or not, so that the children can basically continue, kind of continue the training 
of the parents and so you don't start from scratch all the time so you know there is a, a plethora of different uh, um, ways to to tune uh, hyper hyperparameters and that's exactly what happens when um, one mutates a, a child right now does this work short answer uh, yes only under specific conditions so in this research paper they the group basically applied this approach on um, uh, the cipher 10 and cipher 100 dataset which is a dataset used um, as a benchmark test for image classification and it i mean they show how uh, evolving uh, a bunch of neural networks I think a thousand neural networks completely random, completely random at the beginning, they could end up with a neural network that had the same accuracy of the uh, state of the art. So, you know, those networks specified by um, researchers on the paper, probably. And so this is amazing because, you know, it's, it's, all of this happened just automatically. No human intervention uh, was required which is pretty scary, but it's also, you know, I, I want to be fair on this because um, this is only a very specific case that in which indeed neural networks combined with genetic algorithms might work, uh, but uh, we have to also mention the fact that the computational complexity of this approach is impressive, is extremely high. Think about a neural network that usually trains, I mean, on a regular laptop or even a bunch of, of GPUs with high number of layers, with a high number of neurons and with a, a large training set, it can get to a few days of computation, you know, of training. And now uh, if you start with a population of a thousand uh, individual models, you just have to, you know, the computational complexity of the entire method is uh, that neural network, it's the complexity of one neural network times thousand. Right, and so because you have to train uh, all the networks in order to uh, make perform the selection. Now, what the authors of this paper did uh, was actually mm, during you know the, the the selection and so mutating, measuring the fitness, and selecting in this pipeline, uh, they didn't train the networks. Uh, till the end. So they trained the networks until I think 25 plus thousand steps. I don't know what's the percentage, honestly, uh, but they actually didn't train these networks from zero uh, to the end, you know, till convergence. And, you know, they did that because of course it would have taken ages to, to train a thousand networks or more uh, until the end. And so they realized that and so they said, okay, we're gonna interrupt the training and we take what we get until 25,000 steps. But of course, you know, if this works or might work for very simple neural networks, if you start increasing the complexity, uh, this approach will not work, I, I think, because it's, uh, you know, genetic algorithms showed already that they do not scale well with complexity. Another important aspect to mention of this method is that uh, better solutions are only selected with respect to others. So there is this comparison. And as we said, the, the researchers choose, I mean, the algorithm, the evolutionary algorithm chose two networks, two models randomly from the population. And so the, the, the fitness is calculated, you know, the selection occurs as a, a comparison of the fitness between any two models. Now, this is a limitation in the sense that better solution, a solution is better only with respect to uh, other solution. And so this lead can lead to local optima. And local optima in a very large space of parameters are much uh, more common than, uh, uh, than in the smaller spaces. 
Uh, also efficiency. I mean, we cannot think to consider, you know, this method, evolutionary computing for all the problems at hand because uh, it's, you know, they're absolutely inefficient. And the population size of 1,000 individuals is not even that, that big. So a researcher would like to extend the population to probably a million individuals and, and you know, this is not going to be possible. Another, I think, the biggest limitation of this approach is about uh, dynamic data sets. And so the convergence of this, of this approach, it's towards solutions which may not be valid for later data. So uh, if I had data that stay fixed during training and during evolution, uh, everything is going to work. But if my images change, uh, then the image classifier can, might not be as accurate as I, as I think, because I evolved the entire process uh, considering that the data were static, uh, while now it's not the case. And so dynamic data can be extremely difficult to be, to be learned by an evolution approach. Now, with this, you know, I just want to provide some of the um, uh, constructive critiques to the method. It's, it's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed and uh, it's really beautiful. I would like to try this on, on small networks, probably on the, you know, the digit recognition from zero to nine, um, which is a pretty decent data, data set and um, very well known. Uh, so it's used usually as a benchmark uh, for, for many uh, new approaches. The only thing that indeed I would like to consider, I mean, we should consider all the uh, feasibility of this. So maybe this is just the beginning. I hope to see something more. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you. This episode is supported by Abe AI. The Abe AI platform joins advanced financial machine learning and natural language processing to give banks the ability to engage and support customers at scale using artificial intelligence. Visit aid.ai to see how we are changing the financial services industry or how you can join our team. This was Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. If you like the show, don't forget to write a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Podbean. You can also find us on datascienceathome.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter and get the latest updates. Thanks for listening. Hey, are you still there? Well, let me tell you about the newsletter of Data Science at Home. It's my free digest of the best content in artificial intelligence, data science, predictive analytics, and computer science. Subscribe now, datascienceathome.com.